Well, good evening. Welcome to Seattle Public Library. I'm glad that you braved the sunshine to come tonight. Um, this program had been rescheduled. At first, it was the snowmageddon that uh, really changed the plans. So um, very happy to see you here tonight for um, an insightful examination of the media landscape and its impact on the African-American woman by author Relina L. Joseph. Before I, I fully introduce um, Relina, I just want to take care of a little housekeeping details for those of you who may have not already been at a library program in the auditorium. So um, if you need to leave um, before the end of the program, you can either exit either through here or that door. If, God forbid, we have any kind of emergency, we'll be exiting from this door. There are actually two doors that go straight out onto Fourth Avenue. Um, the library closes at nine o'clock. And so I hope that we'll be able to sort of tie things up um, by 8.30 to give people a chance. They're gonna, if you wanna sign, have a, buy a book, sign the book, have a little conversation, but just so that we're not rushing out and the, uh, the parking attendant isn't irritated that we're holding them up. I think that's as much as, oh, the restrooms, very important. Um, so the restrooms are on this side of the auditorium. And actually, you could go through this exit here, and you'll see that there's a signage with um, images to let you know the restrooms are in this direction. So I think that covers the housekeeping details. Um, the order of tonight is I'm going to do the little introduction. Um, Dr. Joseph will talk. Uh, we'll have, do you want to do a Q&A? I meant to ask you that. We'll do a Q&A. Um, and then after that, uh, she will sign books. There will be someone here to sell the books from the UW bookstore. They just had to go back and get um, a cord. Okay, so. Relina L. Joseph is Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Washington, and she is the founding director of the Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity. Relina is an expert on the communication of difference, or more specifically, of how race, gender, and race, gender, class, and sexuality intersects with equity in our interpersonal and mediated worlds. She's the author of two books. Her first book is Transcending Blackness from the New Millennium Mulata to the Exceptional Multiracial. But her new book, Post-Racial Re Resistance, Black Women, Media, and the Uses of Strategic Ambiguity, examines black women's negotiation of the ostensibly after moment of racism and sexism. I think you're in for a very interesting presentation. Please help me welcome 
author Relina L. Joseph. Thank you. Thanks so much, and thank you all for coming tonight. Um, especially thank you to, to Carletta for, um, for inviting me here. Uh, and so what I'm gonna do tonight is to give you a little bit, um, begin by giving you a little bit of an overview of the book and telling you a bit how I enter in and talking through this idea of strategic ambiguity. And then I'm gonna go into um, the specific case study of Michelle Obama and talking about how she became the Michelle Obama that we know today, the Michelle Obama of becoming, by looking at the Michelle Obama that she was back in 2008. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump in. Um, and I'm gonna begin with a couple of stories that I begin with in my preface. In their very first meeting, a college student's new roommate shifts the conversation from pleasantries about hometowns and class schedules to hair, first complimenting her roommate's cool style and then moving closer saying, I just want to see what it feels like. Just before her roommate's hand grazes her locks, the student gently catches and removes it. She feels her stomach, her cheeks, and her hands constrict with indignation, but she doesn't slap her hand away, she doesn't yell, she doesn't lecture. She takes a breath, permits a tired smile, and says with a measured tone, please don't touch my hair. Later she will journal about this experience, describe it in her request letter to transfer into a single, and share it with faculty, students, staff, and community members at her campus's Black Lives Matter protest. The morning after another widely televised murder of a black man goes viral, the woman heads back to her job as a television writer. She takes a deep breath at the threshold of the writer's room, pausing to rebalance her coffee, laptop, and script bursting with a rainbow of sticky notes. She hears raucous laughter and feels relieved at the promised distraction. But as soon as she walks in, the conversation stops and her colleagues' eyes dart to their phone screens. Busying herself with setting up her space and giving herself a pep talk to pitch her first idea, she smiles and enthuses, you all ready to start? Later, she will channel her emotions from this moment into her own spec script. And then the third opener. On the first day of classes, a lecture hall full of students parade, I'm sorry, a lecture hall full of students wanting ad codes for an oversubscribed course parade past the woman shuffling through papers and outfitted in a tweed blazer and slacks. They line up behind a bearded man in bike commuter attire, sitting on stage, legs dangling. The students address the man reverently as professor and ask him for the honor of joining the class. The woman assesses the students in line in front of her flattered and smiling graduate student teaching assistant. She, take, she takes the podium and warmly addresses the crowd, welcome to communication 389. I am your professor and I will answer all questions about ad codes after class. Later she will narrate this experience for her students in her lecture on stereotyping. 
So I, I begin the book with these three specific examples. The first one um, of students in a dormitory. The second one of these television writers, which is how I end up the book, which is uh, with, with some interviews of black women um, television writer, producers, directors, and um, studio legal counsels. And the third one with my own experience as a professor at the University of Washington to talk through the ways in which racism and sexism or racialized sexism, um, the term that's sometimes used today is called misogynoir, rarely function in, um, in extreme ways, right? They function in these coded fashions. Um, and, and we have this term that we call microaggressions, right? Um, microaggressions are, are often described as um, um, allegedly well-intentioned, right? They're, they're often um, thought of as, um, as, as what psychologist Gerald Winks, who says, brief everyday exchanges that send denigrating messages to certain individuals because of their group membership. Microaggressions thrive in spaces where racism remains unacknowledged and where people believe in the, fa the fallacy that our world is now post-racial or that we are beyond racialized inequality and perhaps race itself. And so that's, that's where I start the book, is with, with this fraught idea that we're caught in this world where racialized sexism is something that is always happening, right? And yet people of color in my book, black women, are hamstrung in the ways in which we're able to identify, to talk about, to, um, to actually name what is happening in the moment. Um, so what happens? What happens when, when we cannot actually um, name this phenomenon? And the book is, um, is set very much in, um, in what I talk about as the Michelle Obama era. Um, and I think that, that while this moment um, was not too long ago, um, it feels very, very long ago in lots of different ways. Um, this is a time when um, black women enjoyed some of the most prestigious and visible positions in US popular culture and yet still could not speak in this forthright manner about racialized and gender discrimination. And, and you know, sometimes when I'm talking about um, racial eras and thinking about the era of 45 versus the Michelle Obama era, um, it's not, I'm, I'm not saying that, that this moment is over. They, they live on top of each other in various ways, right? Um, but, but I try to really kind of name what was happening, what was operative at this particular moment. Um, and I'll give some examples about this as we're going through. So, you know, in this moment, um, as black women were redefining what it means to be an icon in our celebrity-obsessed world, um, what I'm talking about is this idea of strategic ambiguity. And how I define this is um, foregrounding a type of a crossover appeal, courting multiple publics, speaking coded language, and smoothing and soothing fears of difference as anything other than an incidental side note. So I talk about strategic ambiguity as coming about when a privileged, minoritized person comes into the room and feels um, the racism, feels the sexism, but knows that it's not safe to actually explicitly call it out. Uh, but also knows that, that she needs to resist. And so how does that resistance occur when it can't occur with forthright language? That's what I explore um, in this book. Um, strategic ambiguity is, is not 
um, a strategy of walkouts of pickets or sit-ins, um, but it's also um, not about safety um, because of the ways in which any race gender talk by black women is risky, even if that risk is insulated by the extreme privilege of celebrity and the deniability of strategic ambiguity. And um, in the book, I arc, I arc from looking at um, some readings of celebrity figures to thinking about how audiences are reading uh, these women's performances in resistance of racism and sexism. And as we're, we as audiences are consuming these performances, we're learning about how are we then going to resist, right? Um, do we want to mirror these performances? Do we want to think about different types of ways of, um, of, of resisting than we're seeing on the screens themselves? And that's what I saw from the audiences um, that I spent some time with as well. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot to um, the specific case study of Michelle Obama. Um, you know, the Michelle Obama who has earned the title of Forever First Lady for some of us. And you can see here in this, um, in this little collage, this is a mix of pictures, um, some before and some during her time as First Lady. And I'm gonna set the scene and talk a little bit about the 28, I mean, the 2008, rather, campaign and what was happening at that moment before she became um, the beloved figure that she would, she would soon become. All right. So um, in the months leading up to the selection of the 2008 Democratic nominee, Michelle Obama was widely considered to be a liability to her husband's campaign. In both anonymous online spaces and mainstream media outlets, journalists and lay commentators alike attacked Ms. Obama with astoundingly racist, sexist vitriol. And people remember this, right? She was going to be um, the reason that her husband's campaign sunk. Right? And people were trying to sink her simultaneously. And what did this look like? Brittany Cooper summed up these comments as focusing on Obama as, quote, unpatriotic, unfeminine, emasculating, and untrustworthy. While sociologist Natasha Gordon described how Obama, quote, has been charged with epithets ranging from being, quote, ape-like to a terrorist to a bitter, angry black woman to President Obama's baby mama. If online comments were crude and explicit, mainstream press sentiment circulated barely sublimated racist codes that amounted to one underlying assumption, Michelle Obama simply wasn't the image of a first lady. So that's kind of my, my setup in this chapter. So, you know, and, and she, um, so she talks about how um, she is, all of this incredible um, hatred is thrown at her, right? And she is not able to react. There is no way in which she can call it out at, at all, right? Um, and she's able to now, in Becoming and on the press tour, she's able to kind of let, let a bit of this out and to say, um, I wanted to be able to. This is incredibly painful. But she has to always take the high road. She's taking the high road. She's acting as though you know, nothing is bothering her, right? And she's on the stump. She's always on the stump. So um, one of these days that she's on the stump and she goes to Wisconsin and gives a speech that she had given a number of different times. Now, um, the exciting thing for me, um, you know, and being a media scholar, I read kind of the tea leaves of media text and see the way that I can put stories together. And that's what I did for this, right? 
Um, but now with Becoming, and Becoming coming out, she talks specifically about this incident that I'm gonna tell you about. So I was able to see um, where I was right and where I was wrong, um, and I have to say I was mostly right, um, in, doing some, in doing some kind of piecing together of what was happening. So she's on the stump in Wisconsin. Um, she goes to make this speech here um, that you know she had done a number of different times, but what was different this particular time was that um, the McCain campaign had decided um, that they heard she was making a couple of remarks they thought they could pick up on, right, and publicize, and that could um, really go across the conservative media and take her down. So she makes her pride comments, first in Milwaukee and then in Madison, Wisconsin. So she says, what we've learned over this year is that hope is making a comeback. It's making a comeback and let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult life, I'm really proud of my country. And it's not just because Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry, hungry for change, right? So, what I want to talk about here is how, how what, she, what she's telling us is her talk of hope, which she is underscoring with a collective vision, um, and it's not just about individual success. Um, she's talking about you know, folks who are usually overlooked, uh, and she continues saying, and I have been desperate to see our country moving in that direction and just not feeling so alone in my frustration and disappointment. I've seen people who are hungry to be unified around some basic common issues, and it's made me proud. And I feel privileged to be a part of even witnessing this, traveling around states all over the country, and be reminded that there, there is more that unites us than divides us, right? So what I talk about here is, in particular, her insertion of I statements, Right? She's not isolating herself from the people that she, she's rhetorically conjuring up. She's very much in the category of the people who are dispossessed. She and her family are, are a part of this group that she's identifying with. Um, she also makes this particular type of an, of an interracial moment of connection in the next part. She says um, that people, the crowd needs to keep in mind the struggles of a farmer in Iowa are no different than what's happening on the south side of Chicago. The people are feeling the same pain and wanting the same thing for their families. Right? So we see here that working class whites, the farmers in Iowa, were cast out by the then Republican regime in the same way that working class African Americans, those on the south side of Chicago, were. Um, what this amounted to was that people needed to stand together in cross-racial unity, okay? So, of course, this is not at all what's covered. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a pin in that for a second and move back to the image that you all see on the screen. Because what I just focused on were her words. We got just a segment of that. But I think that the incredibly virulent response that's about to come comes largely because of this image that she presents for us. So in the speech that she gave you, for example, as she's presenting her speech, she is unsmiling. She's very, very serious. She's not the Michelle Obama um, that's quite perky, you know, that, she, that we see nowadays. She's always smiling. She speaks in longer sentences. Right, you can see that she's wearing this gray crew neck sweater. Um, she's got her her you know little minimal, no nonsense bob there. Her jewelry that kind of just 
blends into her outfit, her very minimal makeup. It's the content of her words, right? Not what she's wearing, not her feminized performance that are the focus here. And what I'm kind of contending is that, that she is projecting the image of a feminist. And that's part of what makes her so vulnerable to being attacked. Um, so attacked she is um, incredibly after this. Uh, so conservative commentators, uh, most prominently television news personalities Joe Scarborough and Sean Hannity and the McCain campaign quickly picked up on the single portion of the comments taken out of context. For the first time in my adult life, I'm really proud of my country. 24-hour cable news networks feature these comments around the clock as proof that Ms. Obama was bitter and un-American. They caricatured her, as one cultural commentator said, as, quote, emasculating, sarcastic, and bossy. Cindy McCain, the very picture of the traditional read white first lady, picked up on Michelle Obama's line that same day, saying at a campaign rally as she introduced her husband, I'm proud of my country. I don't know if you heard those words earlier. I'm very proud of my country. And um, there was Republican merchandising that soon followed this as well. So there was Republican merchandising that said pride in country that came out almost immediately after these remarks. Um, so this all happens, and um, myself as media scholar, you know, I'm reading how um, when this is coming out, you know, following the stories, um, uh, seeing the news coverage, and seeing when it starts and when it stops, and um, and noticing how she ends up being sequestered. Well, she actually talks about this in Becoming, which was fascinating to me. She talks about how David Axelrod and his team brought her into his office, into their office, and said, um, the image that you have going on right now, this look that Michelle Obama had is not, is not gonna work. This is not gonna fly. We need for you all to have a team of folks that are going to change this image. And what they change this image to is the Michelle Obama that we end up um, seeing that becomes far more recognizable, who becomes this, right? So she has this coming out months later on The View. So she's sequestered, she has this image makeover, she comes out on The View a number of months later. She's wearing um, this, um, so she's doing, so this is when she begins doing the whole high-low fashion thing. She wears this, um, this, this uh, black and white floral dress that sells out immediately. Also, um, very, very smart, the campaign rolls out um, a website that's called mrso.org, and on mrso.org you can actually log on and purchase any given outfit that Michelle Obama has worn that day, um, whether she was gonna go to the soup kitchen or she was gonna go to a gala that evening. You could go on and buy something from Saks or go on and buy something from J. Crew. And it would link everything on there. So this is all a way in which she's really kind of shown um, to be the successful person. She also, they also roll out this, the mom in chief, right? Where she is not, um, she is not trying to be a part of her husband's campaign, right, a la Hillary Clinton. She's not trying to, um, trying to take over. She's not, um, she's not the emasculating woman that, she, that everyone is portraying her to be, right? She's really just there for the care 
of her daughter. She's really just there as this sparkling fashionista. So she's on the view, and, um, and, what, and what does she say? So she comes out, um, the audience um, is rapturous, the, um, the hosts are rapturous there, um, and Barbara Walter says to her, what's your answer to all these attacks? And she responds, well, you know, I take them in stride. It's a part of the process. We're not new to politics, but let me tell you, of course, I'm proud of my country. Nowhere but in America could my story be possible. So as opposed to her remarks a couple of months earlier when she was on the stump, um, her remarks here deploy some signifiers of what I talked about as post-race, but here her transformation is complete. Um, I also talk about how she has this very kind of like a highly feminized performance here. Um, her, her, um, her sentences are shorter, her tone is more intimate, friendly, or conversational. She has smiles that punctuate her statements. This is not a seriously delivered speech, but it's a perky monologue that's peppered with interjections from the co-hosts. Um, you know, at this moment, you know, I, I want to also be clear that um, I'm not mad at Michelle Obama for doing this. Right, I understand this. This is part of the, the, the strategy. This is part of strategic ambiguity. I understand this was very much a means to an end. This was a way in which she sublimated the country's racism. Um, this was a brilliant type of a performance that needed to happen here. And um, there was a, a, a lot of judgment from all different types of corners that was happening of her um, at this moment. So, so as she's talking here, so if you think about the part that I quoted um, and her narration of, of, of um, different communities, um, think about her narration here. She continues, she calls herself a girl twice in succession. She says, I'm a girl that grew up, and Barbara Walters says, give the people a little bit. I'm a girl that grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, so she speaks a lot on personal individual matters, excuse me, and not collective ones. Um, uh, she is, in utilizing the tropes of post-race, Obama named her blackness through the code of the South Side of Chicago, which, like in the first speech, was meant to connote both black and working class. But here it is not used alongside the conjuring of an Iowa farmer to foster interracial working class unity, right? A possible allusion to cultural miscegenation or shared oppression, but to signify the point from which she has departed, the point that she moved beyond. The South Side of Chicago becomes a place Michelle Obama made it out of and not a place in which people currently reside. Um, so, and she talks about herself, she says, um, she, she says, my father was a working class guy who worked a shift all his life. And because of his hard work, he sent not just me, but my brother to Princeton. Barbara Walter says, he's now the coach. He's now the coach of, the, of Oregon State, go Beavers. I tell people, just imagine the pride that my parents had who didn't go to college. They felt that through their own hard work and sacrifice, they could have us achieve the things that they could never imagine. And so I am proud of my country without a doubt. I think when I talked about it in my speech, I think I was talking about having pride in the political process, right? So she, you know, she's talking about her dad here as just a working class guy, right? In Becoming, for those of y'all who have read Becoming, she very much talks about, um, about his blackness, right? And she talks about the way in which he was discriminated on the basis of his blackness. Um, but that never is allowed to enter into this type of a narration here. There's not a space for that, right? Um, 
And, you know, so anyway, so I said um, focusing, so, but focusing on black, black success was far from a pander um, to post-race. Um, I think it's a deployment of it. Um, as part of her redefinition of Americanness, Obama um, paused on her parents' hard work and sacrifice, two ideas that might sound like conservatively tinged all-American notions, but which resonated quite differently in lieu of the anti-black racism in which African-Americans have historically and contemporarily been pathologized. Um, in such a context, Obama's comments resounded far differently than Joe Biden's recounting of his kitchen table chats with his working class father, Hillary Clinton's recalling her down-home roots in Scranton, or at the time, Sarah Palin's many signifiers of her real ident um, American identity. So I'm talking about like how the, how the race and the gender of the speaker cannot be dismissed here. Um, so that's what happens on, on The View. Her approval ratings uh, start to soar after this, right? And there becomes this true um, fetishism of Michelle Obama, right? And she is on the cover of everything. And everyone is talking about how do you get Michelle Obama arms? And everyone is, is talking about her fashion. So it's the Michelle Obama moment. Um, and it continues to soar throughout both of their terms. Um, and she continues to experience all kinds of virulent racialized sexism along the way as well, right? And then I wanna talk a little bit about the 2016 um, Democratic National Convention. So, um, so throughout these eight years, there are lots of moments like the ones that I, that I stopped on where um, Michelle Obama is, is naming um, um, racialized sexism in code, and there are moments when she is speaking more forthrightly, right? I talk a little bit about um, when there is a dedication of the bust of Sojourner Truth, for example, and the moments where she chooses to use terms like us, and all of the other types of kind of coded significations that happen. Um, and then there, there is also the constant kind of retreat back to coded language around race, coded language around racism and around racialized sexism. Um, and then we have the DNC. So uh, at, at this moment here, um, in her 2016 DNC convention speech, she emerged as the star, wearing a cap sleeve fitted dress with sweetheart seeming that could only be described as deep Democrat blue, Obama's grace and poise ruled the stage. With the platform adorned in a similar blue, Obama became the physical embodiment of the 2016 Democratic Party. Her hair dusted her shoulders, her bangs swooped over one eye, and her earrings appeared to be the marriage of hoops and pearls. Her skin glowed while her beautifully lined eyes glimmered, and her words emerged from lips shining with a neutral color. So she begins her speech by narrating her family's entrance into the White House as one of concern for her daughters. She named Trump in code, iterating the family's response, negativity, right? This is the famous, um, when they go low, we go high. Continuing broadly, her speech punctuated at times by audience yells of, we love you, Michelle. Um, Obama says, we know that our words and our actions matter. Right, so she's not even going to name 45 at all. Right, this is, this is as close as we go. Before moving on to racial specificity. 
Such words matter for all, yes, but especially for kids like the little black boy who looked up at my husband, his eyes wide with hope, and he wondered, is my hair like yours? And some of you all probably have seen that picture that Pete Souza captured um, of the little boy, the little African-American boy touching um, President Obama's um, head, right, touching his hair. Obama continued, the story of this country, the one that brought me to the stage tonight, was one of, quote, generations of people who felt the lash of bondage, the shame of servitude, the sting of segregation. And then the next part of the speech goes viral. I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. She paused with assurance for thunderous applause. Her eyes appear to be slightly welling up with tears as she continued. I watch my daughters, and she touches her chest, two beautiful, intelligent, black young women playing with their dogs on the White House lawn. This statement was capped off by more roaring applause from the crowd. So here, you can see how different her statements are right, from what we saw on The View. She's refuting post-race by underscoring her daughter's race and gender, calling them in, um, calling the teens in a feminist manner young women and not girls, right? Underscoring their blackness by naming that first. Um, and so this is part of what I talk about in this, in this, in this particular moment, that we see her movement um, from, from performing strategic ambiguity to really forthrightly kind of speaking, speaking truth to power as complete here. And I want to actually see, um, because the amazing thing, and I had no idea that Michelle Obama was writing Becoming, um, was to actually see how she talks a bit of this out. So we see this, um, you know, even the, the speech at the DNC and the type of critique that I talk about still is so controlled, right? Um, and how does she then talk about it, for example, um, in Becoming and the Press Junket? So I'm gonna pause this for a second so we can watch a little bit of this. You don't think it's gonna work? Okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize what happens here. So, um, so in, in, this, in the next part, the part that I was gonna show you all, and this is all, um, if you wanna look this up, this is all available streaming online. You're gonna have to sit through seven commercials though, I warn you, we had to sit through seven commercials to watch this. Um, I'll just pause this up here. So, so um, you know, throughout the, throughout the, um, the, the course of, I love President Obama, but I feel like I wanna pause on, there we go, we'll pause here. Yeah, we'll pause there. Um, so throughout the course of this interview, we, we've, we've um, seen them go through kind of um, her life story from her childhood home into Princeton and, um, and through kind of talking through the White House and seeing some of that early footage. And, and here we're starting to hear about um, some of the things that I wrote about, right? And, and also um, how um, Robin shows her back um, uh, some footage of her um, after having experienced some of this incredibly virulent racism and sexism, and her saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, it doesn't bother me, I'm fine, it's really, it's really okay, I'm used to it, it's public life, it's whatever. And here she's saying, um, that really hurt. That was incredible, incredibly painful. And I think that we do not do ourselves or anyone 
um, any type of a service, it's an incredible disservice to pretend that we are these ironclad um, beings who, who just are expected to be superwomen all of the time. And, um, and you know, what she's saying is that our strength comes about through, through our vulnerability, right? And it was in this moment, this was last, last fall, where um, Michelle Obama is the antithesis of Shady, right? She's, she's so classy, but she gets as close to Shady as we've seen her go, where she talks about kind of speaking back to, to Sheryl Sandberg, where she's like leaning in, not always a good thing. First of all, it's not possible for everyone, right? It's a very class notion. Not everybody is able, it's very racially, a very class notion. Um, but also, it's not always a good thing, right? Um, what type of, what, what, what is the impact on our souls when we are always having to lean in and when we're always having to take um, the brunt of everything and not to show that, that, that it hurts? And, um, and so I was going to kind of end there. It was, you know, um, where, my, where, where the book goes. So I, I talk about how Michelle Obama is the one um, iconic figure who really performs this thing I'm trying to name a strategic ambiguity the most flawlessly, right? It works the best for her. And it feels like she maintains her soul in the process and she uses it effectively as a tool, right? Um, I then in the next chapter talk about how Oprah Winfrey, um, who has used it throughout her career, right? Oprah Winfrey, who um, is famous for, for having talked about how I transcended race, um, that's what she said back in, in the 80s when she first got, got her television show, um, how she, in fact, tries to pick up this strategy at a particular moment, and it doesn't work for her. It doesn't ring true. Um, and then I talk a, a little bit about Shonda Rhimes and, um, and, and how she has come to prominence through being able to perform a certain type of colorblind casting. Right, and she also performs this similar type of um, kind of um, colorblindness at times in her own press. And then when does she deploy strategic ambiguity at a moment of attack? I'm interested in these moments of attack. And also not as successful as Michelle Obama. So I kind of go through that in the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, what I was interested in was thinking about how were um, real, live African-American women negotiating through, not that the icons aren't real, but they're, you know, they're on the screens. I'm not talking to Oprah or, or Michelle Obama or Shonda Rhimes, right? I'm reading media coverage, so I'm very much clear about it. I'm reading these, rep these particular types of representations. But for the women that I was able to actually speak to, um, how, how are they kind of negotiating through these different experiences? Um, and so I spent some time with some audiences thinking about their representations and how they were resisting racialized sexism. And they did this in a particular um, setting as we were watching a television show. So we watched a season of um, their favorite show at the time, um, this group of young women. Um, the favorite show of the time was America's Next Top Model. And as we hate watch the show, because they, they absolutely um, hated Tyra Banks, um, they thought that she was a misogynist, they thought that she was a sellout, they thought that she was disproportionately cruel um, to women of color, um, that they would pause the show and then provide these particular type of race and gender critiques. So I talked a little bit about that and the ways in which they are saying, we are not using strategic ambiguity, right? Um, these women are very, very young 
And um, now I, I shared all this information with them. This happened 10 years ago. Shared this all with them. And now um, a lot of them are saying, I actually, I don't have the luxury to, um, to speak forthrightly in the ways that I thought that I would, right? Um, I have to use strategic ambiguity in lots of different ways in my life as, as um, at, at this corporation, in my life as a PhD student in all these other institutions that I've joined. And then I end the book with, um, with a chapter where I'm talking to um, black women television executives who kind of skirt these different types of strategies and talk about how they use strategic ambiguity in various ways, um, but that it's a first line of critique, it's a first line of defense, and then if it doesn't work, that they figure out all types of other ways to go. So I tried to figure out how to bring this to a variety of different settings um, in order to kind of exercise the theory and to see if it really kind of, if, if, how it worked um, in various ways. And you know, part of my, part of my philosophy um, is, is you know, riffing off of one of my favorite Malcolm X quotes, which is that um, racism is like a Cadillac, they make a new model every year. And so if racism is like a Cadillac and they make a new model every year, we have to think about how do we have all the different types of tools to work on each of those different Cadillacs? And so in my book, as I'm tracing strategic ambiguity in these various different ways, from its kind of, um, um, kind of perfect deployment by Michelle Obama through its flawed deployments in these various ways by these other celebrity figures and through its flouting of strategic ambiguity um, by these young women. Um, these are all different types of tools that people are picking up um, to try and resist racism and sexism. Uh, and what I try and do in my work is to think about all those tools as valuable even what, um, even what Oprah Winfrey is providing us in various ways and, and about how we can then pick, pick up and utilize those tools as, uh, as media consumers and um, as, as folks that need to think about different strategies to change our world around us. Thank you. Okay, so we will take some time for questions and answers, so uh, just raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, what was, what's the department that you work in, uh, that you are, uh, what is your department at the UW? I'm in the communication department. Okay, I was just wondering why you didn't touch upon some of uh, some male, you know, responses to racism, because these are, these are interchangeable, and uh, yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, the book is, is very specifically focused on black women, um, and, and while I absolutely agree that there are lots of different ways in which all different types of minoritized folks, other people of color, LGBTQ folks, um, could experience um, similar types of, um, of coded responses, um, I really wanted to have, um, to write the the best book that I could in the most specific way that I could, and for me that meant focusing on black women. So, so that's, what my, that's why my case studies here are on black women. Um, and a lot of the other work that I do, it's, it is um, able, you can use these theories 
um, as, as um, a point of application for lots of different folks. Um, what I think is interesting is that I think that people have trouble thinking about understanding black women as the sole example that then can be used as, um, as that point of identification, right? Um, there's, 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 uh, I've been noticing it as I give book talks, there's lots of people that say, but where am I in here? As opposed to, I identify with what the black woman is, is experiencing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But I think that there's a lot in here um, that lots of different folks can really identify with while still kind of saying, um, but we can be naming the specificity of black women's experience. Yeah. Thank you. I have a comment and a question. Yes, ma'am. The comment is that this is like the perfect example of how insidious racism is mm. because the racist then gets to dictate how racism gets talked about. Yes. It is terrifying yeah. and insidious in yeah. so many ways that these people, that the racists yes. get to control, continue to control the dialogue mm -hmm. because then she became the angry black woman, mm -hmm. remember? And so, yeah. Which totally shut her down. Mm -hmm. um, my yeah. question is, did you yeah. look at any black press coverage of Michelle Obama during this era? Yeah. Whether the, that C-SPAN video that you had yeah. or, I'm just curious about, I don't know, like the Amsterdam, you know, just different yeah. black, yeah. Press. I don't know. If, I don't know if you were looking at news. What kind of press you were looking at? Yeah. Like responses. Yeah. I'm just curious about black press responses. Yeah. Thank you. That was the question of the historian who wanted the archive. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. No, but but uh, on on that first on that that first question though. I mean, this is why strategic ambiguity is not the. It's not a strategy to dismantle the master's house, right? To to use Audre Lorde's words. Um, it's, about, it's about incremental change, right? And I talk about it as a strategy that allows one through. It allows the singular person through. It does not allow um, large communities to come through. It does not allow systemic change to happen. Well, it also seems like it's an individual mm. like what the person is, like that person really yes. is. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm usually loud enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. No, because everyone needs to hear you. She wants to hear you too. Yeah. But in terms of the archive question, I was really interested um, in this book in particular in mainstream coverage. And so um, I did LexisNexis searches and for, for mainstream coverage. Um, I looked at how the story arced across, um, I could show you my, what, I, what I looked at, but, but I, was not, I was not interested in black press coverage. I was interested in very mainstream coverage for each of the different inc incidences, right? Because I, I didn't want to read the counter narrative. I wanted to read um, the, the narrative that was really kind of oppressing and, and holding everything else down at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, my question involves around why the racists get to define the language. Why is that? And how do you deconstruct that situation to push back? So why do racists get to control language? Well, I mean, langu language is one of the structures of our institution, right? Of it's, 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 it's an, 
language is something that comes out, out, of, out of our, our ideologies. And so um, if we have racist ideologies structuring our world, we understand how to speak, how to iterate ourselves from, from the ideologies that structure our world and our society. And if our society is a racist one from its fabric, from its history, from every institution that we have, it only makes sense that our language is equally racist, right? Now, how do we unpack that? So, um, I mean, this is what I, I do my, on the other, my, my, wear my other hat. Um, I just did a class with the librarians here on interrupting privilege that's, that's specifically about how do we work to unpack our language? How do we work to, um, to, to think through making sure that, that, that we're not speaking from this old racist past? Um, and I think that it's not about figuring out that list of words that we cannot say, right? It's about actually understanding um, how power and privilege are functioning in language um, and connecting our language use to these larger structural issues of, of discrimination, of racism, of sexism, of homophobia, and, and, and um, making sure that our, our individual choices are linked to those larger structural choices. So it's, a, it's like a whole systems approach um, which is part of what makes it so difficult. Yes. You know, I'm I, oh. oh, yeah, yeah, Mike, and then we'll bring it down. Yes, please. I'll pass it down. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't see that you had it. I apologize. I just wanted to say thank you for um, writing this book. I can only imagine that it's just a scratch on the surface to begin with. So my question to you is, uh, now that you've started the conversation, what's coming down the line? Oh, well, thank you for the question. Um, for me, it's, I mean, I think that it's, it's linked to this gentleman's question here. It's about um, the types of critiques that I'm making in this book how do we actually, um, how do we go from critique to action? And um, so the, one of the books that I'm working on right now is, um, is a field guide to interrupting privilege. So I've been teaching all of this stuff on interrupting privilege and I'm actually um, trying to put together um, a book on, on how everyone can, can do these different things even if you're not a trained facilitator for it. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through what are the, ways in which everyday folks can work together um, to, to, to work on changing our world. Because I think that there are so many people that want to do good and, um, and just don't know how. And I think that, especially here in Seattle, that it starts with people being really afraid to speak because they're so afraid, and particularly around issues of race, because um, people don't know and understand um, languages of race. And part of that's because we are so segregated, right? Um, and our social worlds are so apart. Um, so that's what a lot of my, my work is, is thinking through how do we kind of respectfully work to, um, to come together to unpack racism. Thank you. Thank you for this book. I think it's really important to look at how uh, women are, um, I don't know, used to bolster the underlying, um, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, hegemony, like the underlying, just this is the way it is, and it's the way it's supposed yeah. to be, and all that. But the, the thing that caught my, my ear was 
when you said Michelle went from being from the South Side to uh, escaping the South Side, and sort of like this, uh, the neoliberalism mm -hmm. of, of the individual mm -hmm. um, instead of the systemic. Yep. And so in some ways, um, like Michelle and um, Oprah are used um, as an, it's not about, it, it, it's an oppressive, their, their images are used as an oppressive uh, force for people who are still, I'm from the South Bronx, from the South Bronx or from the South Side. Mm -hmm. Instead of being of the people, they become, and so yeah. that, I think that's such an essential point. Thank yep. you yeah. for talking about it and I hope you talk about it a lot more because that's what we need. Yeah. We don't need stories of overcoming. We need stories about um, I, not only, not like Lincoln and the, you know, log cabin, but real stories. Yeah. Right, right, thank you. That was a long question, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and you know, and what I what I'm talking about is is how she she is using um, the very dangerous type of neoliberalism, right? The very dangerous form of, of post-racialism, um, and using herself as the example of someone who and her brother as the people who did escape, um, and and it's troubling and it's tricky, right? And at the same time, it's the reason that that the Obamas were elected. So, so it's a particular type of compromise that works at that particular moment. And she's able to slip in other types of critique at other moments. Um, I, know, I know many more people that have, um, have uh, so this gets into other bigger conversations about respectability politics, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. Um, I think that I see it done more subversively with, with Michelle Obama than, for example, with Barack Obama. Right, um, he, for example, if you all were watching, um, paying attention to the, the, the speech that he made at Morehouse a couple of weeks ago, was still um, complaining about people pulling up their pants. Right, um, so I think that, that, that um, it doesn't feel as subversive with him as it does with her. Um, so I, I, I hear you that, that, that it's, and this is, this is the problem with this type of a performance, right? That it's, um, it's not, it's, it's operating at so many different levels, right? It's meant for so many different types of audience. There are some people that it's gonna be winking at. They're gonna be like, oh, we see what she's doing here. And there's other people who are gonna be saying, oh, look at she was the one that made it out. How come all these other people can't do it, right? And why can't I do it? Right. And that's the most right. insidious, right? Right, yeah. you know? right, and then internalize that. Yeah. Right, thank you. So I think in a matter of time, this will be our last question, and then um, uh, Relina can sign books and say um, something to you personally. Um, so this question is about the fact that she's on this kind of rock star book tour, mm -hmm. and she's filling places like the Tacoma Dome, right. and um, all these white folks are there who think that they love her and adore her. Yeah. And, and the question is, are they hearing the critique that she is offering? Do they really understand uh, what she is telling them when she talks about the perfection that she knew that she had to hold while she was in the White House, being the, the first black first lady and her, and her mm. family? And do they really understand mm. that she's still exploring 
how she can truly be herself mm. in a racist society mm. that does not want her to be herself mm. as a black woman. Mm. And I don't even know if that's the right question, but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think by the, by, by the build of your questions, you probably have a sense of what the answer is. Um, I think that audiences are complex, right? I think that, that there are people who attach themselves to all different aspects of Michelle Obama. So, for example, I was <laughs> when, when she was first lady, I had a white colleague whose um, mother, who was, had a white mother, who was obsessed with Michelle Obama and, because of her jump rope routines. And so her, which, which was, I guess we're on, you know, during her, her Let's Move campaign, and so would watch her jump rope routines, and so her and her like 60-something mother who was, who, was, who was very fit would like watch these jump rope routines, and that's what she was focused on, right? So, so I mean, I think that she, she has a lot of fans that, well, clearly, that, that kind of focus in on different things, and then at moments of discomfort, right, can kind of back away. So I don't know if like the jump rope fan is wanting to hear the race critique, right? Um, it's been a number one bestseller. So she has lots of different fans. Uh, but, but I think that um, she certainly has, has brought all kinds of new conversations. I mean, I was definitely fascinated that, that when the book first came out and when the, we should be able to actually see the Robin Roberts interview, that the focus was all on her having fertility treatments and um, going to marriage counseling with Barack. Like, that was what was like the headline news buy this book, this is what, what you want to read about. And it was not about let's, these questions about race. They, those were very, those were like, you know, kind of fourth and fifth paragraph. So um, I think that, that for, at least in terms of the, the mainstream selling of becoming, um, that's, that's not what the publishers are, are, are understand is going to, to um, make it into you know, it wasn't becoming a black woman's journey to the White House and beyond, right? It just wouldn't have been, you know, the same thing. Um, and yet, I think that that's a lot of what we actually see in the book. Yeah. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Carletta.